Singing is first and foremost an act of joy. And I've been blessed, very blessed. Welcome to Taco Talk, a podcast series that spins tunes and tales with members of the American Classical Orchestra and beyond. Hosted by Thomas Crawford, Artistic Director of the ACO, each episode takes a unique and intriguing glimpse into the world surrounding historic performance. Welcome to Taco Talk. I'm Tom Crawford, the Artistic Director of the American Classical Orchestra. It's my great pleasure today to welcome the soprano, Julianne Baird. Welcome, Julianne. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Great to have you. We've had such a distinguished career, and it's uh, we've chatted a bit, and it, it occurs to me that uh, you, maybe like Mark and I, have contemplated over the years that we, we love all kinds of music, we're good at performing all kinds of music, but you have had such a career as if you were just a gift from God to be an early music singer. How is that possible? Well, I think I just came along at the right time. I mean, <laughs> a lot of it was serendipity. If you ask me, I was shocked to be accepted to the Eastman School of Music, but in my first semester, I had this feeling of which of these is not like the others. And it was me. I recognized that oh, while a lot of my colleagues, the other eight singers that were music majors in my class, that were you know singing majors, they were singing Puccini beautifully. And Puccini really felt like uh, a nightmare for me to sing. So in my second semester, I changed to musicology, and that's when my life opened up because um, I had a fantastic teacher who asked everybody to bring their tuba and their uh, saxophone to class because we were going to learn how to trill. At the end of the class, he said to me, would you stay after class? And if you're willing to let me teach you, I will train you in all aspects of uh, early music singing. And he he did exactly that. That is, I mean, that's just such a simple, straightforward way of saying it. I love it. You <laughs> yeah. know, and I mean, of course, the musicology thing didn't hurt you a bit because for better or worse, uh, for example, I'm a conductor. But if I do early music, I need to be a, quote, scholar conductor. You know, we have these treatises of how people play. The ACO is a period instrument orchestra, of course. And uh, we have these treatises. We have these paintings that show how people held their flute in, in the year 1720. We can really identify things. And then we have the instruments themselves, which are often actual historic uh, creations. So it's the original sound, I guess you might say. Um, but I was thinking, you know, how are assumptions made about Baroque singing? Well, I think, first of all, um, in my early days, I was kind of paired with Emma Kirkby. I was sort of, they, they called me the American Emma Kirkby. And we both, I think, strove for less vibrato in our sound. Although I thought a lot about it over the years. And um, one of my best friends wrote a 
a 50-page tome, a, a, a real academic study of non-vibrato and vibrato. And the thing is, it's both have existed throughout time. You can go back to Pretorius and he'll tell you that the best kind of boy's voice is schwebend und bebend, which means quaking and shaking. So when he was picking his boys for his boys' choir, he wasn't looking for straight tone. He was looking for an ease of production. Well, where do you think we got this uh, straight tone sound for Baroque singing then? I think it comes from the dissonance and also from honoring the harmonic patterns. So, for example, the appoggiatura, it literally means to lean against. And the appoggiatura is almost always dissonant with the harmony. Absolutely. And so how do you lean? Do you just vibrate bigger? (laughs) Probably not. You probably actually really don't vibrate as much on the dissonant notes. Uh, Similarly, I can tell you because I've judged so many competitions, if I hear a singer who has no concept of when to use and when not to use vibrato, like, for example, if every long note vibrates the same way, I'm done. I've lost interest in that singer immediately. Well, I can tell you, and, you know, having worked with... uh some top violinists with modern violin, you know, it sometimes seems like they're vibrating every 32nd note, you know, <laughs> fast passage. It's just ridiculous how vibrato got out of hand. But I mean, if Pajatura is going to be dissonant, didn't we really associate so much straight tone with the early music movement? I mean. Yeah, until we figured it out, until <laughs> at least until I figured it out. Because I... I liked my vibrato. My vibrato was, uh, luckily, I still can take it in and out. Some people, as they get older, don't have that choice anymore. Uh, they vibrate no matter what they, what they do. They've lost some control of that vocal function. Interesting. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you, too, that I'm not a singer, but I've always loved singing and uh, have had the pleasure of being with lots of children's choirs. I can attest as a kind of uh, objective choir director observer of hundreds of children who've come into my studio that some children develop a natural vibrato. It seems like it's part of the body. It's part of physiology. Well, there are three ways to make a vibrato. One of them is extremely healthy. It's when a slight rocking of the cricothyroid happens, and that's throat vibrato. You also have what a string player might call babung, which is belly vibrato in the scene. Like, do you know um, Cantata 51? Sure. The mm-hmm. second movement, mm-hmm. if, you know, and the strings have wah, 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 wah. It's all on one bow. The singer can do that too if uh, she pulsates from her diaphragm. So you get and people like Luciano Pavarotti very quickly learned that he could speed up his vibrato like at the end of a like a fantastic aria to make it like a vibrato crescendo and so a lot of young uh, met singers male singers in particular have picked up on that technique by listening to Luciano 
Ah, I never heard that. Nobody ever talked about it, but if you if you listen, you'll hear it. He had the ability to speed that vibrato uh, up at the end of a, like a high note or the last note. Likewise, the third kind, um, not healthy tongue vibrato. You know it the minute you see it because something is moving below the chin. You know, there's a wiggle going on. That is an absolute indicator of a vocal tension. So three ways to make vibrato. Uh, Learn something every day. You know, a person who's traveled as much as you have and has worked with so many great musicians I enjoy talking with you about stories that are beyond the music. You know, there's there's just so many things. And first one was that story you told me about Cinderella, your Cinderella story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, uh, I happen to be um, singing with the Mark Morris Dance Company. And uh, as I remember, it was um, Asus and Galatea which is not a terribly long work. And I spent a lot of my New York career sitting in train stations waiting for, you know, I would miss the last train home and have a two hour wait till the next one. But I had calculated that I could get to the train if I took my flowers and walked right out of the concert hall. And I did, I, I, I ran down the stairs, got to Penn Station, zipped right on the train as the doors closed. And I settled into my chair with my flowers, my concert dress still on, all my bling, concert jewelry, and started to read my my book. I was so glad I was going to get to read a book and be home in an hour and a half. Suddenly, I realized that there's a sort of weaving gentleman, maybe 30 years older than me, hanging on for dear life with a scotch in one hand. And he clearly wanted to chat me up. So what's with the posies lady, you know? And I explained, I just come from singing a, an oratorio and he, he knew what that was. He's his mother, he said, had taken him to opera when he was a young boy. But the more he talked, he, could, he told me how he could read palms. And the more suspicious I got as to, what was really going on. So finally, he said, I'm a great philanthropist. And I thought, okay, now, now we're really talking malarkey. And so I said to him, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I bet you are. If you're such a philanthropist, why don't you give me, why don't you give Rutgers some money? So he gave me his card. And sure enough, he owned Comcast. And we got out of uh, the event, a beautiful Nanette Streicher, a copy of a perfect piano for playing and singing Schubert. And I I used that piano. I made maybe six or seven recordings on it. And Rutgers, of course, wanted me to go, go for the gold and go back for like a half a million dollars. But I wasn't really quite ready to pay that price, if you know what I mean. You're listening to Julianne Baird on Taco Talk. We'll return to the conversation shortly, but first consider helping us bring you tunes and tales from the world of the American classical orchestra and beyond. Look for the donate or support ACO button on email you've received from us on our podcast page or on our website at aconyc.org. Thank you for listening and your support.
you've recorded a lot of things. And I wanted to ask you, you mentioned about a Dowland uh, making a comparison. If we play a couple of audio clips of you here, maybe you could describe them for us. We had talked about the fantastic uh, lute song of John Dowland, who was called Semper Dowland, Semper Dolans, because so much of his music was sad. And he wrote this brilliant uh, song in which he actually depicts what would happen if you put your finger around a candle and just extinguished it. There's this long line in darkness, let me dwell. And it's over right then. The light is out. And that's how he, that's the, that's the last thing you hear in the song too. It's the first thing you hear in the song and the last thing you hear. advantage also of making a couple of lullaby records with Bill Crowfoot, who was an Arlo Guthrie devotee with a lot of money. His, his, um, his father had invented the falsy, you know, so he made a a bleeding fortune, but in any case, Meryl Streep used those lullaby records that we made, I guess, to kind of put to sleep um, a couple of her children. She had quite a number of kids, as I remember. And then Bill was able to talk her into joining with us. She recited Shakespeare, poems about sleep, and we sang our lullaby. So that was another one, <laughs> another serendipitous moment. If any children are listening to this podcast at the moment, kids, just imagine what it would be like to have Julianne Baird sing you a lullaby. Imagine that. <laughs> One that I made uh, just called Balu Baliri. It's, I suppose it's an Irish lullaby. It was published by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And um, they published a book to go along with it so that while your kid was listening to the lullaby, they could be looking, you know, at various famous paintings of children. And um, so it's still out there. Sleep soft, my baby. Sleep soft. 
My latest recording coming out in June is going to feature uh, songs of the grandson of uh, Felix Mendelssohn, Albrecht Mendelssohn. Uh, the musical gene stayed alive through those two generations. And it seemed like everybody he fell in love with, he wrote a series of love songs to. And the most recent bunch of them was discovered in an attic in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, his young law clerk uh, at the Versailles Treaty, and we're talking that's 1917. He was a lawyer for the Versailles Treaty. Um, had It had been passed down with the covered in brown paper and, and the words destroy upon my death. Because in that packet, um, was pretty much the revelation of the fact that there was an illicit love affair uh, between Albrecht Mendelssohn and this and this young, young law clerk of his. But we recorded them uh, June two years ago, and they're they're ready to come out on Naxos. What are they like? They're like Strauss. They wow. are like Richard Strauss. Wow. So they sound they sound modern, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I was really glad that uh Eastman that I learned a lot of leader, both in Austria. I had a leader class uh, two times a week in at the Mozarteum. So I sang a lot of leader there, and it, it helped to have that background. Let's listen. share is you have a piece about hissing and booing (laughs) tell me about that well uh i have two children and uh i had a daughter in 87 and an au pair luckily enough i had great child care and my son was born in august of 89 and uh i was invited to teatro de la monnaie in belgium to sing two pieces with Mark Morris. One was the famous Pergolesi Stabat Mater, but preceding that was uh, a Vivaldi solo cantata, Amor ai Vinto. Cupid, you have one. And I was always down in the pit because uh, I was rehearsing with uh, the pit lowered. Um, so I, ne- I never actually saw what was going on on stage. 
so imagine my shock when I finished what I thought was a really rousing performance of this quite coloratura difficult piece. And the audience began to, to howl. And it was not, they were not howling with joy. They were howling and booing and hissing. And I was completely confounded until I turned around and realized that the dance had been performed completely buck naked. We're not talking any covering. And Mark Morris loved his Belgian beer and he had a figure to, um, to prove it. And he had replaced Maurice Béjar at, um, at the theater uh, as the dance, as the master of dance for three years. And the Belgian Catholic, very, very conservative audience, absolutely despised him. It, that happened at intermission. And then at the end, uh, we were all pulled up on stage as the audience booed and hissed and howled. And Mark tripped daintily off stage and each time returned with a larger neon crucifix. Till finally he, he sported a, as his necklace a 12-inch long neon red crucifix. And when we went off stage, I said, Mark, it's clear you, you are, you know, you're egging them on. And he said, this is how I survived, Julianne. I've got two and a half more years. <laughs> well, you know, you talked about children too, uh, your children and uh, taking them on tour. I mean, why not? You know, I mean, you you were a young woman. You had these children. You weren't going to leave them in the States, right? I mean, how did you manage that? I mean, you you had a varied reception to bringing them, right? Oh, I certainly did. Um, in fact, when I got to Belgium, I happened to have a girlfriend who was a music librarian. And she said, no one has ever had a baby in the opera house before. She said, I'm going to watch him for you uh, and you'll put him in the opera director's office. But no one can ever know that there was a baby in his office. And my friend furthermore told me that if divas have babies, they a certainly do not nurse them because it was against the whole French culture. Women did not nurse their children. They had wet nurses or they put them on formula. It was not a thing. La Leche had not attacked Belgium yet. Mm. So I broke several, you know, codes of behavior that I wasn't even aware of by bringing my son. But luckily, uh, two weeks later, my husband came bringing my daughter and we happened to be there when the Berlin Wall fell. It was really a spectacular time to be in Europe. Yes. And your children would never forget that. No, they won't. <laughs> For all of you who are listening uh, and the guests we've had on these Taco Talk podcasts, Julianne, you probably do have the largest discography of anyone we've had. And uh, so I can definitely commend all of your recordings for people. And uh, as soon as you stop listening to this, click on Julianne Baird and pick one of many beautiful things she's done. Really, thank you. Oh, my, my indeed great pleasure. Singing is first and foremost an act of joy. And I've been blessed, very blessed. Well, you not only had a beautiful instrument, which you were born with, 
but you brought so many other human resources to it, the musicology, the, the huge variety of interests that you had. It's really been a great gift to all of us. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure. I'm producer Mark Zaki, and you've been listening to Taco Talk. If you're interested in historical music performance and music in general, I encourage you to subscribe so that you can hear all of the other interesting episodes that we have coming up. To learn more about the American Classical Orchestra, please visit us on the web at aconyc.org. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.